World Podcast, brought to you in association with MS Amlin Boat Insurance. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine, and today we are discussing waterways cartography with our guest, Richard Fairhurst. Richard is one of the country's foremost cartographers. He not only provides all the maps for Waterways World, he's also carried out such work for the Canal and River Trust, Sustrand and a number of other organisations. But, as we'll hear, he's also had a very varied career, which includes working for the British Waterways website Waterscape and a six-year stint as editor of Waterways World. He is, though, perhaps first and foremost, a waterways enthusiast. He is a boat owner and he has had involvement in both canal and historic narrowboat restoration over the years too. As such, our conversation covers a lot of ground, Not all of it directly related to cartography, but, as I'm sure you'll agree, it's all fascinating. So, let's take a listen. So Richard, the Inland Waterways have not only been a long-held interest of yours, for several years it was a means of earning a living too. How did it all start? Oh, uh, when was I first interested in the waterways? Um, yeah. That so that that was uh, my parents had a little uh, cabin cruise. They had a succession of boats, really. But um, uh, at the time I came along, they had a, a tiny little Shetland uh, cabin cruiser, I think it was, uh, which they kept on the uh, River Saw because I used to live in Leicestershire. Uh, I was actually born just over the fields from Audlem, uh, so I, oh, I think right. I think you could probably from from the house where. Uh, uh, house where I spent my first three years uh, until we moved to Leicestershire. I think you could probably uh, uh, not quite see the Shropshire Union, but you could probably sort of lob, lob a stone from the back garden if you had a good throw. You could <laughs> yeah. get there. Uh, so yeah, uh, brought up near the waterways. Uh, we'd go out uh, at weekends on this little boat, and uh, my dad was a teacher, and he always used to take his class out for a narrowboat trip every year. And so I sort of come along with that, and you know that that was huge amounts of fun, and that was sort of primary school age um we ended up moving and we didn't have the boat anymore for a while but then at university i got back into it uh, and uh, a bunch of us would hire a boat and you know be one of those awful parties of uh, 12 students who go around the waterways drinking every single pub dry and uh, seeing how much boating we could get done in one week uh, i had a particularly uh, memorable uh, holiday once with the uh, uh, friends from university when i think we, we hired a boat from middlewich narrowboats because they were basically the cheapest most basic boats you could have and we were all impoverished yeah. students uh, and um we we were just sort of bombing around trying to do as many waterways as we can and one day we uh, ran out of fuel and so we phoned up uh middlewich narrowboats and said you know we've run out of fuel um can you tell us what the procedure is you know do you reimburse us do we just go to a boatyard and pay for some fuel what is it and they said no you can't have done that's impossible I said no no seriously we have run out of fuel there is no fuel in the tank no that's not possible we can't have done that where are you by the way 
within Stourport. Oh, okay, maybe you have run out of fuel. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was all good fun. But um, so that that was uh, that was basically uh, an interest. And after that, uh, I spent a while going digging with uh, Waterway Recovery Group, uh, and uh, I eventually got a job on the waterways, which was actually uh, working for the other canal magazine for Canal Boats, and I was their deputy editor for a while. When, how did that break into the waterways journalism come about? Well, that's that's slightly weird because I had been I'd been writing for magazines anyway. Uh, I I wrote for um, a magazine, believe it or not, called Amstrad Action, which uh, you know it must be something about alliterative waterways, uh, waterways world, Amstrad Action, all about that. Uh, so I I was their sort of freelance technical writer. Uh, that was basically because I was a teenage computer geek, and uh, I sort of I, I became their agony aunt. People would write in saying, "Why doesn't my Amstrad work?" Or you know, uh, "I can't get this program to work. Why is it?" And I solve their problems. So that that was kind of fun. It was also good because it was a bit of freelance income, which uh, helped. Uh, help me fun uh, help fund me through university which was kind of fun uh, right, so right. yeah uh, I, I did that and then after university I, uh, my first job was going off to a um, a magazine called keyboard review which did exactly what it said on the tin we reviewed keyboards uh, musical keyboards rather musical, than, yes. yeah yeah r- rather <laughs> than you, know. you, weren't, you weren't that much of a computer <laughs> game that you were reviewing <laughs> <laughs> no no well you'd be surprised but no no and, and you know again this was all the sort of thing that it was all about my interest because you know I, I played the piano I played the church york and all of that so this was actually kind of a fun thing to do uh and then so i, I did that for a year and then i um i freelanced for a couple of years uh partly because i didn't really get on with the editor there uh and uh after that yeah i um uh, i saw this job come up at canal boat they wanted a deputy editor so uh i went for that and got it and uh, spent the next half many years uh, writing new stories about the waterways which was I mean, it was good fun, uh, especially because this was, I think I started there in about 1998. And so that was the time when all the millennium restorations were kicking off. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this, this was all sort of reporting on every month we would have uh, reports on the um, on the Rochdale and Huddersfield and the Scottish Lowland canals and all of that. And it was, you know, a great time to be writing news pages for Waterway magazines. It was also fun because we basically had a nice sort of informal rivalry between um, Canal Boat and Waterways World as to who'd get the stories first. So uh, <laughs> uh, it was uh, me on the one side and uh, first of all, um, Regan as news editor of Waterways World and then uh, she was succeeded of course by Chris Daniels so it was um, nice to actually then uh, a few years later go and uh, be able to work with Chris. You, you must have been quite young. Yeah I, I was I was I think um, I must have started about the age of 24 25 something like that yeah. Uh, and yeah you know absolutely always the youngest in the room you'd go to you know user group meetings or things like that and they haven't changed you know they, they were not exactly uh, uh, full of 20 uh, somethings so yeah uh, but you know that that's all right. Uh, you know, I, I play the church organ. I play for a church choir. They're not exactly young either. Uh, and these days I'm not exactly young, so it all goes on. Um, did you cover any particularly big stories at that time? Yeah, so my, my absolute favourite story there was that uh, British Waterways at the time uh, was... You know, BW was very much the organisation driving all the big millennium restorations. They were incredibly pro-restoration at the time. And this was largely um, due to their 
effervescent, I think you could say, uh, chief executive Dave Fletcher. Uh, I, I really like Dave Fletcher. Um, I mean, he was generally nicknamed uh, by waterway journalist Dr. Death. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> despite that, he was a lovely guy. Uh, and uh, he, he was... He was a great person to report on because he was just completely incapable of uh, keeping his mouth shut about anything, uh, which was right. perfect because, you know, you, you knew every time you spoke to him, you get a story out of it. Anyway, uh, one of the things I, I did at Canal Boat, one of the less glamorous parts of the job, was putting together the uh, monthly events list. And I saw one month that it said, uh, coming up next month, IWA Manchester uh, are going to have an address by uh, Dave Fletcher talking about the waterways. I thought, oh, that could be interesting. Uh, so I got the train up to Manchester, uh, went into this meeting and sat very uh, quietly in a shadowy bit at the back of the room uh, with my notepad, uh, hoping that he wouldn't spot who I was and uh, taking all these things. And he just came up with all these stories that would that had just not hit the news before. So it was things like, you know, British Waterways is going to sponsor the IWA National Festival. British Waterways is going to restore the Cotswold Canals, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, and I was thinking, this is great. This is my, uh, this is the next uh, four months of news pages basically written for me. So yeah, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, you, you've got, you mentioned the Cotswold Canals there. Um, you've got mm. quite an, an interest in that and you must be... Um, Excited about recent developments. Yeah, totally. Uh, so with Cotswolds, I mean, I live on the um, the other side of the Cotswolds to Stroud. So basically the sort of uh, Oxford side of the Cotswolds. Uh, so it is in, uh, to some degree, our local canal, certainly our local restoration project. Uh, but also we moor our boat in Worcester. Um, and so uh, at the moment, you know, a lot of boating is going up and down the Severn. If we can carry on down to Saul Junction, then turn up to Stroud, that's going to be amazing. So yeah, very much looking forward to that. Um, I've always always loved the Cotswold Canals and uh, one of the first uh, canal maps I ever did actually was a restoration map for the Cotswold Canals Trust. Uh, it's still the one they use although they've sort of uh, improved and ad- adapted it since because so much has happened uh, but yeah uh, very very much a supporter of um, the restoration project there and it is absolutely terrific to see what they're doing and you know I, I think it's it's a great project because they're they're great canals, but I also think it's absolutely what waterway, waterway restoration should be about. Uh, if you look at, uh, they always used to publish in the back of the Cotswold Canals Trust magazine uh, their list of new members this month, and they're all locals. Uh, you know, they've they've got thousands upon thousands of members, and it's because they've convinced people who live in Stroud and all the uh, towns up and down the valley there that this is going to be a real boost to their area to have the canal restored. So the amount of you know the amount of support they have managed to get for a project which the you know, the waterway condescendency used to say was impossible you know you, you can see there are quotes from charles hadfield back in the 60s and 70s saying um, uh, attempts to restore the cotswold canals are a complete waste of time and i don't know why people are bothering well you know uh, fast forward 50 years and they've basically done the first you know, they, they've now got funding for the first third half of it uh, and i wouldn't bet against them doing the rest how do you think they've harnessed such support? Um, it's difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, they they do a lot of uh, they do a lot of local activities, uh, but you know they, they they just build stuff, they just restore stuff, and they they have been doing for a long time. You know, you look at 
um, you look at actually what phase 1A and phase 1B are doing, and a lot of it is building on the slow restoration work that the volunteers had been doing in previous decades. And I think, you know, that's always a really good way for uh, restoration projects to work, that, okay, you only get the canal fully restored throughout once you've got, uh, you know, once you've got the big um, heritage lottery. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And once you've got the local councils on board and all of that. But that doesn't stop you, um, that doesn't stop you uh, restoring individual locks or individual bridges beforehand. And CCT Mm. did a lot of that, continue to do a lot of that. uh, And that's what gets people excited. They say, oh, yeah, you know, this this place that used to be... uh, stagnant ditch basically uh look some people have come along entirely as volunteers and they've made it look beautiful i i approve of this i want to see more of this and so yeah you know you get a i think quite a lot of local support that way yeah and i'm sure it must be very inspiring for the many other canal restoration projects around the country yeah it shows that making slow and steady progress may eventually pay off totally yeah and i I think one of the uh local examples of that for the cotswolds is that the Cotswolds can point, uh, you know, 50 miles to the south and say, look at the Kennison Avon. That was a massive restoration project and is now an enormous success. It is an enormous success as a waterway, but also as a resource for local people, um, for walking, for cycling, uh, for nature, whatever it might be. Uh, wouldn't you like a bit of that? And so if you can make that argument from the KNA uh, and apply it to the Cotswolds, then you can bet in 20 years' time people are going to be saying, OK, well, look how good the Cotswolds has been. Let's go and do that with the Wilts and Barks, because if it applies there, then it will 100% apply, um, you know, a, a short way to the south on the Wilts and Barks as well. Yeah, sure, definitely. It's an interesting topic, uh, restoration. Math. We're definitely going to dedicate a podcast to it in the future. Um, yeah, and I, I hope that we're. I hope that we're about to see um, a bit of an uptick in it because you know all of this is basically uh, a lot of it is. Uh, dependent on the goodwill and especially the free finances of local authorities of the lottery and so on and so forth and we had so much of that around the millennium and since then you know credit crunch followed by coronavirus followed you know who knows how these things are going but the Mm. fact that the fact that uh, the Cotswolds is happening and is basically going to be the um the the first big project of this ilk uh, since the joint wedge restoration certainly uh i think will hopefully start to give a bit of impetus and so yeah where the Cotswolds follow uh starts then hopefully we'll see um the wilts and barks the way in our and the grantham all of these things coming along in the next decade or two Oh, it'd be fabulous if they could be returned to navigation. So what's, what's your favourite, Bobby? What's, uh, which one do you root for? Um, well, being in the East Midlands, I'd probably have to say the Grantham Canal. Um, mm. And they are, they are making quite significant inroads up there, as I, I'm sure you know. But, yeah. uh, you know, just having any waterway returned to navigation is a wonderful feat. Yeah. And the Stroud Water we were discussing in relation to the Cotswolds Canals when that's back in water, it'll provide another nine miles of navigation, is it? Yeah, about that, about that. And it's nice because hopefully you then get to the stage where you there's the pressure to keep going forward, to keep driving a bit further up the valley. And, you know, there's there's still big engineering obstacles up there. I think there's a, a couple of railway crossings that will be difficult. There's the A419, is it, I think? I can't remember which one, but um, there's going to be a different difficult road crossing there. But, you know, it will come in time. I'm absolutely no doubt about that. I'd also love to see the northern reaches of the Lancaster Canal. Oh, totally, yeah. I'm a big fan of the the Lancaster Canal, and I just think if you could open it up, you know, um, 
from Tewitfield to uh, yeah to Kendall. It'd be just brilliant. Yeah, I. I cycled a bit of the uh, Lancaster um, Northern Reaches. I think the top bit into Kendall, uh, you can uh, cycle along the canal uh, for a mile or two. And yeah, you know, you've got there's a lovely old bridge there and right into the heart of Kendall. I think, yeah, this would be crazily popular. Yeah. That's it. I'm never going up there because I'm a bit scared basically of frying my engine on the Ribble Link. But hey ho. That's a real shame. I just think if you could just drag that canal, you know, <laughs> southwards a few miles, yeah, totally. connect it directly to yeah. the network. Yeah. It would be unbelievably popular, um, but it's just that access point is the the difficult uh, the difficulty there. Yeah, but I, I guess that kind of uh, preserves its character. You know, it was it was isolated for so long, and it still has that sense yeah. now when you cruise there. But yes, the fact yeah. that it's wide and it's the the main line is lock free. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant. Totally. So. I wanted to talk to you about cartography. When did your passion for maps begin? Was it in tandem with your interest in the waterway? I think, I mean, lots of people like maps. I'd always like maps as a kid. Uh, I think there are... um, uh, there's somewhere in my mum's attic there's a, a little map that I drew at about the age of uh, seven or eight showing the derelict waterway a couple of miles from our house so you know uh, which one was uh, that uh, Melton Mowbray navigation uh, so oh, I, used, right. I, I used to live basically halfway between Leicester and Melton Mowbray when I was growing up uh, and uh, yeah the River Reek was uh, navigable until about 1877 I think or something like that uh, and it was literally about a mile from where we lived so yeah to want a map for that uh, and yes I always like maps uh, at uh, when I was about 18 or 19 or so, I did, uh, for, for my Amstrad, for my lovely Amstrad, I, uh, did a bit of a sort of computerized mapping program, which was kind of fun. Uh, and, uh, when then when i got the job at canal boat um we had the idea that we were going to give away a free map of the waterway system so i said oh yeah i'll, I'll do that as a copy of illustrator sitting on my work computer how hard can it be uh i think that was my introduction to exactly how long it can take uh, to draw a map but yeah absolutely absolutely loved it and um, since then i've still been um, you know i've been drawing maps and slowly hopefully uh, getting better at it over time uh, i was lucky in that uh, through a couple of personal contacts actually i had um two two people i knew um and sort of helped me with things cartographic over the years uh one was uh, a lady called mary spence who used to run geo projects which was a canal mapping company now sort of uh, evolved into heron maps through one way or another uh and the other was uh steve chilton who i knew through the open street map project and as it happened mary was the chair of the british cartographic society and steve was the chair of the society of cartographers which was the other cartographic society so you know if you want two mentors to help um help you get better cartography then having the two chairs of the cartographic societies in britain is not a bad thing to have no i can imagine do you consider cartography to be a science or an art it's both it it is absolutely both uh it's it's something that uh you know it's got to it's got to look lovely uh and it's it's got to be visually appealing and so that's that's the art bit of it uh and you know hopefully have a bit of imagination and a a bit of verve to it as well um Mm. but on the other hand the you know there is absolutely a scientific aspect to it uh you are essentially portraying facts uh you are um trying to 
record them in as efficient uh, and communicative as way as way as possible. So yeah, uh, you know there, there are maps which are uh, incredibly artistic. There are maps which are. Uh, you know, more rudimentary and just get the information across without too much art in there. I think the art is trying to balance the two, to be honest. Mm, yeah, I can see that. How do you go about creating a map? I tend to do most of my maps, certainly the ones I do for uh, Waterways World, I do in a programme called Adobe Illustrator, which is basically uh, a drawing programme. Uh, and uh, you can you can use a programme like that. You can also use, uh, there's a few free equivalent so there's uh one called inkscape and a few things like that um and then so you, you start with that and you start with some data uh you can trace off an existing map uh if that's if you if that's something you can do legally in terms of copyright clearance and there's lots of out of copyright maps that you can base your work on the nice thing about that is that the canals really haven't moved in the last 70 years so out of copyright maps are quite easy to come by uh so you've got that and um then you yeah then you start with the styling decisions then you start with adding all the extra data uh, you have the challenge uh, especially with the sort of um mapping i do of basically trying to move everything out of the way of each other which is process called generalization in so far as if you were to do a so a 1 to 50k map which is if you think of the purple um land ranger ordnance survey maps that sort of scale um then if you were to do everything absolute to, to scale and have a nice wide canal line which is generally what you want to do because you want to be able to see the canal prominently uh then everything ends up on top of each other because there just isn't enough space to show everything to scale mm. in the space available so you end up spending quite a lot of time uh, moving railways and roads out the way making sure that the road crossings are nice and perpendicular to the canal even though um the way they probably came in from the data is uh, at a skewy angle so yeah that's um that's pretty much the process but uh, illustrator's good fun it's a, a, a nice intuitive drawing package it's not cheap nothing adobe do is cheap um but yeah i'm, I'm quite comfortable working in it does your cartography work give you an insight into the construction of the canals? Yes, yes, I think you could say that. Um, you certainly see uh, that, especially if you're working with contour data, uh, so you've got hill shading and that sort of thing, you absolutely do see how the canals snake around the hillsides and often find the um, the easiest path from one valley to another so you can see oh yeah i can see from this hill shading i can see from these contours absolutely why this tunnel was here and not somewhere else because this means that it's 500 meters shorter than it would have been otherwise so yeah uh, it's very very much like that I, I think i was thinking in terms of maybe you know some of the pennine canals when i was yeah. asking that question you know um, absolutely yes yes and it's it's actually quite quite nice doing a, a map of the rochdale or the huddersfield narrow or the leeds and liverpool because it's a chance to do some nice hill shading, to be honest. You don't get, you don't get a lot of hill shading on the Ashby Canal, uh, no. but you, let alone the Fens. Uh, but yeah, you totally do on the Pennine Canals. Certainly do. You've outlined the use of computers in cartography. How else has it changed in the digital age? I mean, you could absolutely say now that there are more people looking at maps than have done at any time in history uh, but most of that is online uh, and mm. online online cartography has its own very particular set of uh, 
design challenges. In a way, it's kind of easier because you can always zoom in. Uh, whenever you're looking at an online map, it's pretty much always in an environment where there's either a, a zoom button you can click or you're looking on your phone and you can pinch to zoom in further. So to some degree, that gets rid of the challenge of having to fit everything into the same space uh, yeah. and having to make all the icons uh, not collide with each other. Because does it matter too much if they collide with each other because you can zoom in i i like to still you know make a bit of an effort to uh make stuff not end up on top of each other because i think it's good to be able to see an overview of an area so i like to do maps that are visible even if you zoomed a fair way out rather than having to zoom all the way into every single detail to be able to see what's going on um but there's there's also online maps have the challenge of interactivity so it's not just about what you might see looking at the map to begin with is also what happens if you click on this waterway or click on this lock or something like that um, and what extra information do you present people with there so quite a lot of the mapping i do these days is um, online first as it were uh, i've done the the mapping uh, the main mapping on the canal and river trust website is uh, stuff i did for them a couple of years ago and have done various other projects like that uh, and yeah it's it's still the combination of art and science. You've still got to have something that uh, looks appealing, uh, makes people want to interact with the map and still communicates the information clearly. But the design challenges are quite different to working on paper. What do you see as the future of waterways maps? I mean, we've got the online maps. Is there any way... Is there anywhere maps can go now uh, in, in terms of... You know, you've got the interactive element. Yeah, going beyond that. I, I think it's it's pretty much. Um, I think it's pretty much inevitable that um, more people are going to be using apps uh, as their main waterway mapping, and you see that a lot already. Um, yeah. You know, um, I I love Nicholson's and I love Pearson's, and uh, to, you know, to a certain extent, going uh, going on the waterways is a chance to get away from staring at a screen um, twelve hours a day. So maybe you know there'll still be people who love the paper maps, but I think it's inevitable that uh, online mapping will start to have more of a foothold as it has with absolutely every other form of mapping as it has with uh, road mapping as it has with cycle mapping all all of this sort of thing. Um, so. That at that point that starts to have implications of what sort of information is communicated on the maps. Uh, you know, are we going to find there's basically more detail about pubs and things? Are you going to find that uh, when you're looking at a waterway map, you can click on a pub icon and it says what beers are on at the moment? Uh, mm. Are you going to find that the map automatically updates itself um, to show where the stoppages are? And you know that that already happens if you look at Canal Plan. Um, they've been updating their online mapping uh, really well over the past year, and that now shows stoppages. Um, that are currently in effect over the network. So all of that sort of thing, I think uh, we're going to see pan out over the next few years. Very interesting. You are, you are boat owner yourself. I know you've yeah. mentioned um, it's a 40-foot semi-trad. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name. <laughs> uh, it's called Yago Frithuk, uh, which is after a, uh, uh, after a character in... The poems by R.S. Thomas. Uh, but uh, our, our friends at uh, Worcester Marina, the uh, 
ABC base where we always get to get it serviced. Call it Lego Pritstick. So um, that that will do for now. You can call yeah, it Lego yeah. Pritstick. Uh, I could get my mouth around that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have you had the, the boat for? Uh, well, actually, bought it, I, I bought it when I was working at Waterways World uh, because uh, I, I live here in Oxfordshire uh, and Waterways World is based in Burton-on-Trent. And on the one hand, uh, schlepping up and down the M40 and the M42 every day is just not going to happen. That's not a bunch of fun. So for the first year I was at Waterways World, uh, I rented a flat. But renting a flat in even in Burton-on-Trent is a, a good way just to drain money straight out your pocket so i thought actually this would be quite a good idea um quite a good opportunity to uh live on a boat part-time so uh we got the boat uh got it from sawley marina uh moored it in burton uh and yeah yeah uh, for for the next six years or however long um that was where i where i stayed when i was in burton um there half the time back here in oxfordshire the other half of the time uh and lo and behold we had a boat to go on holiday with uh when i um when i left waterways world it seemed a shame to uh get rid of the boat so we still have it we've moved it down to worcester which is uh, really convenient for us down here and uh, a good place to base a boat because you've got the combination of the seven for quick day trips and the worcester and birmingham when the seven is being uncooperative as is its want <laughs> Um, where, where did you moor in Burton when you were there? Um, Shopnall, uh, Shopnall Shop- Marina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, lovely people, very friendly. Uh, and a quick cycle ride across Burton from the marina to the Waterways World Office. Of course, yeah. You know, you know, trying not to get killed in the Burton traffic. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I could tell you a lot about Burton-upon-Trent uh, Burton upon drivers, but you probably know, uh, I know plenty well, about I know that these well, days. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Um, <laughs> So have you um, been out on the this year? Yeah. Been out much on, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we went out for a fortnight this summer. We um, went up the um, up Seven to Stourport, then um, Staffs of Worcester, uh, Stourbridge, Dudley, uh, through Birmingham, down the Stratford, um, down the Avon, and... Um, as luck would have it, uh, we had beautiful weather all the time until we got to Tewkesbury, which when the heavens opened, which meant that the next day struggling up from Tewkesbury to Worcester on the Avon was fairly slow progress. Uh, sorry, on the Seven uh, was fairly slow progress. But yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it was yeah great, great fun, really, really nice holiday. Uh, and, you know, obviously we've been out for weekends and days. So, um, in fact, just uh, just the other weekend, we were out on the uh, Droit Witch Ring. Uh, again, really nice thing about mooring in Worcester is that it's one of the few places you've got a weekend ring you can do. So, yeah, um, yeah. Round, round to Droit Witch and back and it's great because there's you see so much in that one ring you've got narrow canal broad canal um river it's yeah it's a, a lot to do and good pubs along the way as well yeah it just so happens that we've given the Droit Witch ring a lot of coverage recently yeah um not only was it the subject of a cruising guide a few months back in the current issue we have a, a piece on the family hire boat holiday on the ring um and it was their first time afloat and i did think what a splendid introduction to the waterways it would be you know in terms of variety and mm. arriving into worcester on the river it's just brilliant it is and and although you get everything none of it's too hard you know the the droit Witch barge canal locks are actually pretty easy as far as broad canal locks go um you've uh, the the new locks on the junction canal are reasonably easy to work as well worcester's suburbs are better than most suburbs you don't have um mile you know there's there's no particularly dodgy areas but also uh you haven't got sort of miles of people's back gardens or anything like that uh you're pretty soon out into greenery uh and yeah the the seven is uh, the seven is always interesting but Mm. even you know even 
even if it's up a bit you've only got a, a short distance from Beverly Lock down to um, down to Worcester and, and Diglas you've just got that one turn where you've got a big wide river to do it in so yeah it's a uh, it's a brilliant route yeah and even the, even Droitwich yeah is uh is a nice you know it's a nice town and yeah, it, it uh, is absolutely and, and going through there heading through there is is fairly pleasant as well isn't it so yeah um, it is it is you've got yeah. uh, netherwich basin right in the middle uh where you, you know you can more right in the middle of things you've got a, a waitrose supermarket over the road you've got the gardener's arms just um just the other side uh, and yeah it's absolutely perfect place i think you know the only thing that you could say against the Droitwich Ring is that there really isn't anywhere much to moor on the Droitwich Canals apart from Droitwich itself. So, you know, yeah. your, your itinerary is slightly circumscribed by that. But, you know, as it happens, going up from Worcester, that's fine. Uh, we do Worcester to Droitwich in one day and then we do Droitwich back to Worcester in one day. That's, you know, fine for us. We've almost gone full, full circle. We were back to the the benefits of uh, canal restoration. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, the, the, absolutely. The, the Detroit, which... But that that is an interesting one because going back to the point about uh, the impact on local people, the the Detroit, which final restoration was co-funded by Worcestershire County Council and by uh, Witchhaven District Council, who are the yeah, councils in Detroit. And you think, okay, uh, so why are they putting two million pounds or whatever it is in order to make a plaything for boaters to come through? And actually, you see entirely why because local people make really really good use of it the barge canal in particular so many walkers so many cyclists so many anglers um the local businesses are clearly doing well out of it uh, whether it's uh, uh pubs chandleries all of that um and you think actually from their point of view that was probably two million pounds really well spent i think they've um earned that back for the local economy several times over already yeah when i last was i i, I I walked a stretch of it this summer, mm. and Vines Park was absolutely bustling with people when I yeah. you know, passed through. And there's all the shops and pubs you know, nearby, and you just think, yeah, this has got, you know, this is really going to have a, a real local benefit. So, um, and Vine, yeah. Vines Park is lovely the way that the canal is so integral. Um, absolutely, yeah. and I think you know the, you don't you don't even see that many places on the long established system. I think you know the the most obvious parallel uh and again a millennium restoration is uh Slawit, and i will get lots of uh, letters of complaints saying that i've pronounced it wrong but Slawit, Slawit, how you want to pronounce it on the huntsfield narrow uh where you've got a canal basically straight up the main street and again i, th- I think that's lovely it's very much bringing the canal into the heart of it oh right yes i was thinking i i I also slave way. I never knew. I never known how to pronounce that. Well, I, I th- yeah, I, I, th- I think. I think it's Slawit, but um, then if you if you talk to the people who really know the waterways there, so you know Nigel and Susan at Shire Cruises and people like that, um, they'll point out that actually when that's said in the local accent, it's more like Slawit. So I'm, I'm not going to even attempt to do a Yorkshire accent; it wouldn't work. No, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Yeah. You've also been involved in the restoration of a historic working boat, a butty. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is uh, best described as a uh, project boat. Uh, um, so we, um, we, which is me and a couple of friends, have a uh, Grand Union butty uh, from the big expansion of the fleet in the 30s. Uh, it's, it's called Hagley. It's a, a big ricky, which basically means it was uh, uh, built with um, an extra plank to make it uh, to, to make it have decent cargo carrying capacity, particularly on um, the 
Thames and the rivers thereabouts. Uh, sorry, the canals thereabouts. Uh, and it's you know we've got the whole re- um, restored now, and we've got some frames up for the cabin on. Uh, getting a cabin and motorising it is the next step. But you know it's. It's a slow project. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to be uh, planning my holidays this summer uh, to take account of it. But, you know, it's it's nice to be able to actually say that we've helped preserve it in some way because yeah. uh, I remember when we were first looking into this back back in the 90s, there were quite quite a number of the um, uh, big rickies and Grand Union boats in particular still around. And actually, the, the number has been slowly dropping because although there are obviously many that are still uh, entrusted to really conscientious owners, certainly more conscientious than me, uh, there are also those that have just been hanging around at the side of a mooring somewhere and that everyone knows yeah it's it's there but no one's really looking after it and yeah you know one of those will go every couple of years or something so the the historic fleet i think is slowly diminishing and it's it's difficult because it's you know what what's the business case for um, maintaining that sort of heritage it's quite difficult to say okay we're going to um, apply for a grant to maintain the 15th big ricky or whatever it might be because the funders will say well there's already another 14 of them uh, why yes. do we need to give you money for the 15th um but nonetheless you know the uh, a lot of the interest of the grand union boats was that there was this massive fleet uh, and it would be lovely if more of them were preserved more of them were actually out and about and uh, working you, you know you do you do still see many but i think historic boat preservation is not something that has ever found a really easy funding model and that's a great shame and boat restorations are a costly endeavour, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's the whole thing about boats standing on for bung on another thousand. It really is. Mm. Uh, and, you, you know, they they were built, to be honest, as fairly short life craft. Uh, when, when Hagley was put together, no one was expecting it to still be floating nearly 100 years later. It was built as something that could be uh, worked, worked into an early grave for 20, 25 years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then they uh, phone up walkers of Rickmansworth and say right we need another 20 butties uh, can you deliver them by next March and they'd say yeah sure this is what we do uh, so that that was that was the way the economics worked back then now there aren't many people uh, building new wooden boats Jem Jem um, Bates at the boatyard where we keep Hagley uh, has built new boats and you know he's absolutely amazing what he can do uh, but you know that's that's pretty much it and so if we don't preserve the boats that are there already uh, then there aren't going to be any more no that's right um, and that's a good point to end on I guess um, thank you so much for your time today Richard thank you it's been really interesting talking um, I think we've covered many many different subjects I'm sure we could uh, have another conversation cover a whole bunch of new ones yeah well we'll, de- we'll definitely invite you back uh, you've, you've kind of offered that so yeah we'll yeah. talk to you again in the future we didn't even get onto cycling so there you go well we'll definitely talk about cycling and we'll definitely talk about your time at BW Waterscape <laughs> that could be fun <laughs> thanks Richard Choosing the right insurance for your narrowboat Wide Cruiser can be hard work, but the friendly team at MS Amlin Boat Insurance will provide a quote tailored specifically to your boating needs and really take the hassle out of insuring your boat. Call 01732 223 650 or visit boatinsure.co.uk.